Pray with me as we continue our morning in worship. Father God, we come before you thanking you for your word. May we hold it in such high esteem and and may we behold uh, wondrous deeds from it this morning. Uh, Guide our time together as we look at your word and uh, to see what you have to teach us this morning. Amen. Our text this morning comes from Matthew chapter 6. And while you turn there, I just want to ask you, when was the last time that you've heard a marketing campaign to get people breathing? Or on that note, when's the last time you heard a news report or read an article or heard a podcast on the importance of eating? Not just eating and breathing techniques, but the importance of just eating and breathing. You know, I'd venture to say that this is an article or a podcast that no one has read or no one has ever listened to because who needs to remind you to breathe? Who needs to remind you to eat? See, the idea of, of having, be, having to have to be told things like these basic things of eating and drinking, you know, it's crazy because it's just human survival, right? You have to eat, you have to drink, you have to breathe. You know, I've never had to teach my kids to eat food or breathe or drink water. So just like eating and drinking is second nature to humanity, similarly, to the Christian, prayer ought to be second nature. All right, this topic of prayer for the believer should not be necessary because it's a topic that we, we don't need to be taught because it should be second nature again. And so, but if you boil it down, if you boil down prayer, prayer at its base is a conversation. That's all it is. It's just a conversation. And we're conversing with God, right? Prayer is a conversation with God. And it seemingly should be one of the most natural things that a Christian should want to do, right? Talk with God. After all, this is the God who created you. And when you put your faith in Christ, he has saved you. He loves you. He teaches you. And he's always present with you. Prayer ought to be a conversation that is easy and frequent. And so the last thing that we would imagine, if, if I'm setting all this up, the last thing we would need or you think would come is that you'd need to be taught not what to do when you pray. But that's exactly what Jesus teaches us in our text this morning. If you're there with me, Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through 8. Follow along as I read. Jesus says, When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray... Go into your inner room and close the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Verse 7. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask. What Jesus says here is don't be a hypocrite. Don't be a poser. Don't be a fake. Don't act like somebody else because you cannot get away with that with God. You might fool everyone else who's watching you, but you are not fooling God. 
And if you're joining us for the first time this morning, we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Arguably, this is the most famous sermon uh, ever preached in human history, for the preacher was no one less than God's Son himself. And it's been remarkable to see what Jesus has uh, laid out for his expectation of righteousness for the believer. And here is the expectation. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. The main point, right, is don't practice your righteousness before men. You know, kids say the darndest things, don't they? There was once a a dad who went to church and on his way home, he started to complain about the traffic. And then after the traffic, he started complaining about the sermon. Then he went on to complain about the weather, the, so he's, he's the traffic, the heat, the sermon. And then at lunch, he complained about the restaurant being so slow. But when the food was put in front of him, he did what so many good Christians having just left church do when they go to the restaurant, right? He bowed his head and he prayed for the meal. And when he prayed, he gave thanks for the food and thanked God for being so gracious to him. And as they were all passing the food, uh, his son asked, Dad, uh, did God hear you when we left church this morning? When you started complaining about the sermon? Did he hear you when you started complaining about the traffic and about the heat and about the bad service at lunch? And the dad kind of sheepishly said, "Uh, well, I guess so. And so the son proceeded to ask then, did God hear when he prayed for the food just now? He said, yeah, I I think he did. And so the son asks his dad, well, dad, which one did God believe? And therein lies the question, right, that can really expose, if we look at our own hearts, the dark corners of our hearts. And this might be more telling than we realize because it's as crazy as it sounds, sin can be so subtle and so sneaky enough to come even into our prayer life. Our prayers can look more like lip service or an act worthy of an Oscar award. And we can pray a certain way just simply because that's just how we've always done it. But when we don't necessarily think about what we're saying, to whom we're saying it, or exactly why we're saying it, that's where the problem comes in. And that's exactly what Jesus addresses here in Matthew chapter 6, right? The misuse, abuse, or absence of the use of prayer is in fact sin. Now just by way of review, let me ask you again to look at chapter uh, chapter 6 verse 1 again, since that sets up our whole passage, right? Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. That, That phrase there, right? It's the most important thing Jesus says in verse 1. To be noticed by them. That's the qualification. Right? That's the thing that Jesus is highlighting here. Jesus tells us, verse 1, that's the point of this whole section of, of Scripture. And he goes, if you read chapter 6, he shows three other ways where hypocrisy comes in to your spiritual life. Right? As Dwayne showed us last week in verses 2 through 4, hypocrisy in our relationship with others comes in when we give to the poor to be noticed by others. This morning, we'll see hypocrisy is denounced in our relationship with God himself when we pray. And then in a few weeks, we'll see the hypocrisy coming in 
when we fast to be noticed by men. So it's hypocrisy with others, hypocrisy with God, and then ourselves. And this morning, we want to look at that second relationship, which is our hypocrisy when it comes to relationship with God himself. This is hypocrisy in the highest. So look at verse 5. Verse 5, when you pray, when you pray. Now what you're seeing here is like last week of of giving to the poor. There's an assumption that Jesus has here, right? Take note of the assumption. If you look at verse 2, it says, when you give to the needy. And the same thing in verse 5, when you pray. Right? Do you notice the assumption in both cases? Jesus assumes that the followers of God both give and pray. And so Jesus doesn't have to introduce or explain anything here. He just jumps right into it. It seems to be the natural product, byproduct of, of those who are followers of the king. This is how they live. They give and they pray. And so that takes us to our first lesson that we'll learn today. If you're taking notes, is number one, hypocr- uh, hypocritical practice of prayer. The hypocritical practice of prayer. And we see this hypocrite. sorry, man, hypocritical practice of prayer. Say that five times fast. In verse five, all right? When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Please understand the charge that Jesus is making in this passage. He's not accusing them of taking the wrong physical position or location to pray. In fact, let's look at it again. Verse 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Right? Location is not Jesus' concern here. If you just stop reading there, you might think that Jesus loves private prayer only and and, and that's the only way you can pray to him. And we'll talk about that in a second, but it's worth stopping the car here and explaining what exactly is going on and what's not going on in the cultural and biblical context of the time. So culturally, it wouldn't be uncommon for the people to stand uh, in in the synagogue and pray. Right? In fact, commonly, the hours of prayer were 9 in the morning, noon, and 3 in the afternoon. And they'd stop in their tracks and pray, even in public. And so Jesus doesn't say that they're praying in the wrong posture or in the wrong place. In fact, if you looked at the, the whole of Scripture and did a quick survey of when you saw people praying, you'd see people sitting, standing, kneeling privately, publicly, uh, prostrate, on their knees, and even in the belly of a fish, right? God does not prescribe a position to our prayers, meaning God doesn't tell tell us the exact posture, the exact position um, that we, or time that we need to be praying, right? The, The scriptures describe only how those people are prayed when they actually did it. And sometimes those postures, really, they're represented, uh, represented more than simply just the words that they were speaking. At the core of it, no matter what position you take in prayer, prayer must be indicative of the heart. Right? That's where it comes from. And so the problem that Jesus is addressing here is not whether they're praying or the posture they're praying with, but it's why they are praying. So look back at the text, verse 5. So that they may be seen by men. Other translations say that they may be praised by others. This is what Jesus is addressing here. 
He wanted them to understand that you cannot pull one over on God. Because Matthew is not saying, you know, uh, um, uh, that they love to pray. He says that he, they loved when others saw them praying. Right? To be noticed on the street corners. That word there for street is, is like a thoroughfare. It's, it's, a, it's not a common word to refer to just any street in the city, but it's, it's a large one, a broad road where lots and lots of people would be. And what you have here are the hypocrites purposefully timing the location of their public prayer conveniently where the most amount of people could see. You know, it's like us, if we were to shut up, set up shop in the, in the Valencia Mall or, you know, on the, on the Sand Canyon on-ramp onto the highway out here. You know, and, and you might think to yourself, you know, no one does that anyway because it wouldn't be respectable. You know, but what about posting on your Instagram or Facebook page uh, your prayers while everyone is waking up and they can see it? You know, Jesus is saying here, you know, um, you know when, you're, when you're praying for the approval of men, it's not for God. You're acting like your prayers are for God, but it's just really for men so they can see you and praise you. And you're nothing more than just a public performer when that's the case, right? In fact, that's where, where we get the word, you know, hypocrite. You know, it comes from the, the root word, which means an actor, someone who's play acting. You're pretending to be something or someone when you really are not. The idea here, what Jesus is talking about, was, is that it, the hypocrite prays with one eye open so that other, they can see who's watching, to be seen by others. And so I ask you, do you pray thinking, is anyone watching me? Are you focused on men's approval of you? See, the, the hypocrites, you could, you could call them prayer exhibitionists who, who wanted to be seen and to be known by their religiosity. <coughs> Excuse me. It's really unfortunate how sinful the human heart is and how terribly entrenched we can become, even in our own sin. Charles Spurgeon said that this sin is so subtle that it hounds us on our way into the throne room of God. What should be one of the closest, most intimate, conversational moments with God can be corrupted because of our desire to be, wanted to, to be uh, seen and praised by others. And that certainly can be true for us today, right? Even though we don't literally go out and pray on the street corner, but sin can invade our highest and holiest acts. When Christians are engaged in prayer, it is the ultimate activity that our souls can be involved in. And how sad is it that sin can corrupt us even there, right? Countless prayers of ours, whether they're public or private, would never leave the altar of self because I'm thinking about how I'm making myself look good. How will others think of me? Church, this is an easy temptation to fall into. Right? The temptation to only think about how I will be viewed by others. This is oftentimes why a lot of us are scared to pray in public. Uh, you see, the temptation, though, comes from both sides. You know, initially, when you think about this by way of application, you're, you're thinking about how do I apply this into my own life? There's two categories that come to play here. 
On one side, we, when we gather for prayer meetings or men of the word or community groups or uh, uh, faith builders, you know, we don't mind praying. We don't, mean, we don't mind being asked to pray. And we volunteer to pray because it gives us a sort of chance to, to let us be heard by others, to be approved by others. But what I'm not saying is that if you do volunteer to pray in those situations, that, that's not your motive. I'm not saying that's your motive, but I'm saying it's a temptation to be a motive. And then there's some of us, on the other hand, thinking that, um, you know, uh, there's, yeah, in that public prayer, that desire to perform. But the other side of it, there are those who don't want to play, pray in public. We don't want to volunteer to pray. We don't, uh, we don't ask to pray. And we shy away from praying. We, when, we, when we pray in public, we start thinking, what will others think of me? So do you see how it can plague both groups of people with the same exact problem? Right? The person who's eager to pray in public, if they're not careful, can be the same person who's overwhelmingly reluctant to pray in public. Because what are they thinking about? The two groups of people, what are they thinking about? How will others see me? See, one side hopes that people will think well of them, and the other is concerned that people will not think well of them. Therefore, they don't want to pray. Both have the other person in mind when they're praying. And who's missing in everything on both sides of that? It's God, right? Not a second thought is given to him. And it's worth considering because when we read passages like this in the New Testament, in this display of Judaism, we think that we're so far removed from uh, you know, going out on the street corner praying in public and, and it's true that we might be removed from those general uh, religious practices, but not the heart problem. The heart problem still exists. It's still present with us today. And it lingers and it waits to tap us on the, on the shoulder when we are about to pray. And so the lesson here is true people of God pray with God in mind, not themselves or other people. Right? We should be mindful of this when we pray. We ought to be thoughtful about this when we pray. And so all of that to say uh, that whatever is happening in public prayer should be representative of what's going on in your private prayer. Right? The public should flow out from the private prayer. Look at the second act of hypocritical prayer in verse 7. Let's read it. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So don't be like them. Jesus is continuing to teach against this false attitudes and false actions of prayer. He moves them from thinking about Jewish practices now into Gentile practices. Right? Of the, of the Gentile religious experiences where they believed that, they, that the continued incantations of phrases could get God's attention. Right? They thought that the recycling of words and prayers would somehow turn the, the deity's attention toward them. But there's nothing was further from the truth, right? Jesus is trying to address, again, the problem of the heart. He's not saying somehow implying that, that shorter prayers were more favorable, right? After all, Jesus went away for long periods of time to pray. Now, you see that in Luke chapter 6 and um, 
it was important for the, the disciples to recognize uh, that fact. You know, I'm reminded even then of the, the, uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer who said, you know, I have so much to do today that I shall never get through it with no less than three hours of prayer. That's unique to say the least, right? Just with the amount of stuff that he had to do, he was set on taking everything to the Lord in prayer before he expected any blessing in any of his pursuits. Right, Jesus is not condemning in this passage uh, uh, long prayers or even condemning repeating prayers. After all, we see examples of prayer in scripture where there's urgency and, and sincerity. The, those types of prayers are often repeated. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 44, we see Jesus even praying the same prayer three times in a row. Luke 18, verse 1, Jesus teaches his disciples that they should pray at all times and to not lose heart. So what exactly then is Jesus condemning? He's condemning meaningless repetition. Do you know any musicians? Any good musicians? Those musicians that are so skilled, so good, that when they sit down at their instrument, they don't even have to think about what they're doing. Right? They're the ones who kind of, they can zone out while they're jamming. And, and they, you know, they could probably make a phone call while they're playing their instrument, Right? That's the idea of what happens in meaningless prayer. It's just the stringing together of meaningless phrases. It's where the words are not thoughtful or they're not genuinely meant, but instead believe that you, you could just say whatever and somehow it'll just be okay with God. This is the attitude that, uh, where some believers sometimes believe that they can manipulate God through just the, uh, stringing together certain words that they say. You know, it's similar to the Old Testament account where the worshipers of Baal, a pagan god, were, they just repeated prayers over and over. They prayed, prayed uh, those same prayers from morning till, till nighttime. Uh, many Buddhists, you know, they'll sit in a room and then they'll spin wheels containing written prayers, believing that each turn of that wheel sends their prayer to God. Roman Catholics today even will light a, a prayer candle, believing that a prayer that they offered with that candle will continue to ascend to God for as long as it's lit. Rosaries often used to count off repeated prayers of Hail Marys and Our Fathers repeatedly over and over and over again. We must guard ourselves from this. And so I'll ask you, do your prayers all sound alike? Do you pray at predictable times and predictable ways with a predictable formula? Do your prayers sound more like the repetitive words of a five-year-old than it does a mature person in Christ? When you do find yourself praying, is it before a meal or perhaps with a friend or prayers just before bedtime? Jesus says to guard ourselves against both the meaningless repetition and against self-promotion. And so here are some things, again, to ask yourselves and to, to attempt uh, to discover where you are in this matter. And can just consider them as, as I go through it. Do I pray more fervently in public or in private? Do I pray fervently when I'm alone with God or when I'm in the public eye? Is my public prayer an overflow of what's happening in my private prayer life? What do I do and what do I think about when I am praying in public? 
Am I looking for just the right phrase? Am I a spectator in my own performance? So that if I were to walk off the stage, the first thing I would say is, hey, how did I do? Right? These, these questions can, uh, can help any one of us. So let's learn our second lesson that Jesus has to teach us this morning. Our first one was the hypocritical practice of prayer. Our second lesson is that, that Jesus wanted to teach us is the honest pursuit of prayer. The honest pursuit of prayer. Look back at verse 6. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Down verse 8. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. COC, private prayer is a thing for which the hypocrite has no heart. Private prayer is a thing that the hypocrite has no heart. Hypocrites have no desire for private prayer because there seemingly is no reward. But as a child of God who loves, uh, uh, loves to have an intimate relationship with God, that should be where you feel most comfortable, right? In prayer. Here at COC, we have, we have a variety of personalities and a variety of family experiences, different amounts of siblings and how you grew up and how you parent. And some of you self-identify as extroverts. Some of you uh, identify as introverts. And some of you thrive in a crowd. You, you love being in, in and amongst people. But all Christians should be comfortable in conversation with our Lord. That doesn't mean that you know, if you're a new Christian that you, you know how exactly that conversation goes every time. But you should be able to grow in that uh, intimacy with God. And sometimes you can, uh, it can feel like because God is so big and transcendent that you might just out of reverence for him, not feeling that there, that there were uh, any kind of carefulness which is, it is commendable. Ecclesiastes 5 says, Be careful as you draw near to the house of God that you do not offer the sacrifice of idols. And there's a perspective, right, uh, in, in Scripture to understand who we are approaching when we do approach God. On one hand, that you're not just having a normal conversation, right, because he's God Almighty. He is different than you. But on the other hand, it ought to be as normal as speaking to another person just like you or me. See, we're having a conversation with God who is not only transcendent and great and, and greater than any of us could ever imagine, but he's also eminent. He's close to us. He is present with us. We sang about it. Like what Hebrews says, we, are, we have a sympathetic high priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses, having been tempted in every way as we have been, and yet not giving in to that temptation. He now intercedes on our behalf. So to break it down, God the Father is hearing from God the Son on the behalf of his own people. As a representative, right? He is our great high priest. So what we see here is that we should be having this increasing comfort for the Christian in our conversations with our God. Christy and I are we're in the middle of teaching our kids how to talk to God and teaching them how to think about who God is and how to talk about how much they appreciate learning about him 
And it's understandable for someone who's new to prayer to have those sort of training wheels or, or guardrails uh, to prayer. But if we're not careful, they can become this meaningless repetition in their life. And so when we do the same thing, you know, your heart can be far away from, uh, from prayer, right? Where, where, we, where we think about prayer is just checking a box, you know, giving it no thought. And that's far from the heart of what Jesus is commending here in this passage, which is this private conversation. And you'll notice if you look down at verse 6, this is the idea of when you pray, you go into your room and you shut the door. Right, to be clear, in first century Judaism, they didn't have like the three, four, five, six, seven bedroom houses we all have now. But the idea is where this is where you go for your, your, uh, your it's a place of privacy. Right? In fact, some of your translations might even say uh, uh, go into your prayer closet, right? The, the, the inner room of your house. And again, Jesus is not commending this, this geographical location uh, in order to be heard when you pray. But he's approving, when you, uh, he's approving of your own devotion to the Lord. Through times of communion and of conversations with God, it's done with nobody else in mind. See, we, we benefit from that practice when, when we get any chance to pray on our own without distraction. And if you're anything like me, even when I'm in private, I get distracted. I, uh, I, you know, even if I'm sitting down praying, my mind wanders. And my mind can be thinking you know, about things that I have to get done or what I have to stop to do after work or, or anything like that. And so when I do do that, it, you know, I'll, I'll take that distraction. I'll have a pad of paper and write that distraction down. And I've had this same prayer with God. God, forgive me. My mind got distracted. When I get I want to get it out of my mind so we can go back to that uh, conversation with you and to give God my undivided attention. The more uh, that you have you know, people around you or distractions around you, the things can happen and take your attention away from that conversation with God. Uh, the, and the more you're distracted, the more that you're, it's likely to be praying with them in mind and not God. So instead, Jesus commends here this inner room, right? Secure, uh, taken away from observation from the street by shutting the door, securing it from the observation of those who are around you. You know, some people might find uh, that's this privacy that, that Jesus is talking about in special times of the day. Or maybe early in the morning before the house is sort of moving or waking up. And, you know, some of you like praying uh, in, in your journal. You, you write down your, your journal, your prayers out. You know, it's a way to, to process through your prayers. And that's the beautiful thing about Scripture is that uh, uh, it's talking to the Lord, right? The, and, and we're not prescribed any particular way that we talk to the Lord. Other of you, others of you might keep a list of prayer requests. You know, and I've done it, and I know the other elders do this, but we pray through the members of Church of the Canyons and then the specific needs of our church. You know, I've used even prompts like family, extended family, immediate family, missionaries, physical needs, spiritual needs, uh, uh, leadership in our city, our state, our national leaders, uh, underground churches uh, that, to help me help guide my prayers throughout the month. Y'all particularly pray for different categories of people in my life, right? Neighbors or people who I'm going to interact with on that day. Meetings that I have coming up. 
You know, sometimes just text someone based on what I was thinking and praying for them in the moment. There, there are any number of prompts that you can use in your prayer life. But ultimately, I'll, I'll find myself going back to the word of God. And I'll take the word of God and I'll pray through it. And I want to give you an example of how to do that. So turn with me to Psalm chapter 46. If you've never done it before, you know, it can, it can be uh, challenging at first. But I, I assure you that if you start praying back scripture to our Lord, uh, your, your prayer life will uh, become deep. Psalm 46. I'm just going to read the first two verse verses. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the sea. All right, I could read those exact verses that I've just done and pray through it with my Lord. All right? It might go something like this. Keep these two verses in mind. As I'm praying, God, thank you for reminding me of your sovereignty over my problems. God, thank you for recognizing that the world around me is not stable or secure and that things can get crazy. God, thank you that you know me enough to know that I'm tempted to fear. Even though the problems around me are so out of control, God, thank you for reminding me that in you is where I find my help. And that you're not a past tense help, but you're a present help in times of trouble right here, right now. God, I can pray to you. God, I thank you that my strength does not come from me. It comes from you, God. God, thank you that, that you are a place of protection and that with you there is protection. See, that's only two verses. And you can, it can inform your prayer. And I'm, I'm really just talking, uh, taking, taking this scripture and I'm praying it back to God. Right? I'm convinced that this is one of the most underutilized gifts that God has given his people for prayer. And again, if you take this strategy and you use it, your, your prayer life is going to change. So as you read, you will pray. As you read, you will pray. And we don't do it in this meaningless way, but we do it in this conversational way. And at the end of the day, what is scripture? If we were to describe it, we'd describe it as God's words, right? So God is talking th to you through this book. This is what he has spoken. And then what have we described prayer as? You talking to God, right? And so what makes a good conversation in general? It's talking to somebody about what they just talked to you about. So God shares his instruction for his people. And then his people can take that instruction and pray it right back to God. And now notice what happens in our text next. Go back to Matthew chapter 6 verse 8. For your father knows what you need before you ask. And this is where things get pretty remarkable Jesus teaches us that God is omniscient, meaning that God knows everything. Jesus says here, your father, who you pray to in secret, who sees in secret, will reward you. Right? Jesus' whole point here in Matthew chapter 6 is 
your father sees you. You see that in uh, chapter 6, verse 4, your father who sees. Chapter 6, verse 6, your father who sees. Chapter 6, verse 8, your father who knows. Chapter 6, verse 18, your father who sees. And so if you're being honest with yourself, you might be thinking right now, well, if he knows, then why do I have to pray? Right? If prayer is not edu- educating God or informing God, then why do we have to do it? Prayer is, is not giving God a press release of things that are happening when his attention gets taken somewhere else and he's just happening to come back to you and you have to give him some sort of update. So if that's not what's happening, then what is in actuality happening when you pray? Here it is. Here's what's happening. When you pray, you're taking that circumstance, right, that season or that difficulty, and you're bringing it to God because he is your father. Prayer is not where you change God. The prayer is how God changes you. When we pray, we bring his word, we bring his promises in, back into his presence in, in your life, and he's a very present help in time of trouble. Just like Psalm 46 says, we bring those concerns straight back to God. And he takes those concerns and he answers them for our good. Last November, I was, I was dealing with some breathing issues. Uh, it was a combination of asthma and allergies. It wasn't COVID related, but you know, I don't particularly like going to the doctor. But I got to the point where I was just sitting in my living room struggling to take a deep breath. And Christy's usually one that tells me to go to the doctor. But I went to her and said, you know what? I have to go. I have to go. And it just showed the severity of the situation. And so she's, of course, said, go immediately. And so after three failed breathing treatments at urgent care, the doc said that she usually would call an ambulance for someone in my situation. But if I could drive to the ER, uh, she'd call ahead for me. I was a, I was a hot mess. But after a few more breathing treatments and a a steroid injection, something similar to epinephrine to open up my airways, I could finally catch my breath. It was pretty scary at the time. But similarly, in life we encounter a number of things that we did not expect or anticipate. And they can cause us to break out with a sort of spiritual shortness of breath, if you will. Being overcome with symptoms that cause us to panic, to have anxiety, to have fear, to be depressed, to be overwhelmed, to respond in anger. And those who who are your friends uh, around you might say, you know, what what is happening in your life right now? And in Matthew chapter 6, what Jesus says is that prayer is similar to the spiritual epinephrine shot that you get to participate in that helps bring your resting heart rate back to normal. Prayer lets you start breathing again, being able to bring yourself into line with what is true and what is right according to scripture. God has not forgotten you. Nothing has surprised the father because he sees you. He knows what you're going through and he cares for you. And Jesus says, when you pray, your father will respond better than any asthma inhaler, breathing treatment, or EpiPen for your lungs. Prayer is for the believers. 
when things get manic, when things become overwhelmingly concerning, prayer can bring the heart of the Christian back into alignment and trust in our God. And I'm not downplaying the difficult times, the trying or challenging times or circumstances that you might be going through, but you need to be reminded that your heavenly father sees you and he cares for you. He is present and you do not need to impress anybody else watching you because you are loved for who you are in Christ. And this is a significant reality that I'm I'm talking about this morning for those who are children of God. You never have to worry about losing your father's attention or love. And for those of you who do not have that confidence are not children of God. The only way to find that confidence is to repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sin because Jesus is as God's son. And then believe that Jesus accomplished through his sacrifice on the cross, having paid for sins, having been nailed to the cross, rising again three days later so that all who would believe in him would be forgiven. And so we learn in Matthew chapter 6 that God's not interested in spirituality. He doesn't want some sort of general religious exercise. God is interested in the intimate, personal one-on-one relationship between him and you. And you can have this through faith in Christ. And if your faith rests in Christ for the forgiveness of sin, then Jesus is teaching you this morning how to enjoy that relationship even more than perhaps you do right now. And we'll do that by not practicing our spirituality in front of others, but rather enjoying the intimacy before the Lord so that whatever we do, we do to please and honor him. We do this because it's a representation of a life changed by the good good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word to teach us how not to pray and to teach us how to pray. And I do want to see in our church life this something to be so natural, so uh, close and intimate, to be able to spend time with you, that whatever happens in public would just be coming from our private prayers. God, give us, uh, remind us of your uh, closeness and your nearness to us as our Father. God, thank you so much for your word. I pray all these things in your name.